The focus of our study this evening is Ecclesiastes chapter 3, and we will work at getting through verses 1 through 22. It's a fairly lengthy section, but the focus is quite uh, constant through it, and, and so it behooves us to try to get through this entire chapter. The title of our study is The Sands of Time Are Sinking. It actually is based off of a hymn that was put together in the 1800s based off of letters written by the 17th century Scottish Presbyterian Samuel Rutherford. The hymn is called The Sands of Time Are Sinking, and it gives us that picture of sand that's moving through an hourglass. And as we look at Ecclesiastes chapter 3, that's certainly what we are confronted with, the very strong reality, the very vivid reality, that with each passing moment, more and more grains fall through that hourglass. And in the development of Solomon's argument in this book, he has already taught us that life is a vapor. We saw that in chapter 1, as he gave us the motto for the whole book in verse 2, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And we studied that term, the Hebrew term hebel, that's used there, and it has the idea of a vapor, a breath of air that may be visible for a moment in the early morning, but quickly dissipates. Solomon recognized that that is our our life. It is a vapor. And so obviously, as Solomon uh, considered that reality, he had to to deal with the issue of time. How do we understand time then? What is time? And, and that's not an easy question to answer. In fact, philosophers throughout time have tried to come up with definitions of time and there are various proposals and no unanimous consent as to what time really is. Consider for a moment how Augustine of Hippo, uh, the fifth century theologian, how he responded to this question when asked, what is time? He said this, what is time? Who can explain this easily and briefly? Who can comprehend this even in thought so as to articulate the answer in words? Yet what do we speak of in our familiar everyday conversation more than of time? We surely know what we mean when we speak of it. We also know what is meant when we hear someone else talking about it. What then is time? Provided that no one asks me, I know. If I want to explain it to the inquirer, I do not know. Augustine himself was struggling with the challenge for a limited creature, one who is frail and finite, How do we understand time in the big picture sense? Certainly, it's one of the great enigmas of our life as creatures. And in fact, the issue of time is one of those where we see the unbeliever manifest his rebellion against time. The unbeliever seeks to thwart everything that he can related to time. For the unbeliever, time is indeed the greatest enemy in so many different ways. As I was thinking of this, I came across what is called cryonics. Now, cryonics uh, is the practice of paying a lot of money, hundreds of thousands of dollars, so as to quickly have your body frozen upon death and brought down to a temperature of about 130 degrees Celsius and then placed upside down in a tank that contains this liquid so that if all of a sudden you're placed upside down so that all of a sudden if some of the liquid in the tank leaks out, your head is still in the liquid as much as possible and so you are frozen. And the whole purpose behind that is that perhaps sometime in the future medical advances will take place that will allow doctors and scientists to rejuvenate or to regenerate the dead body. That is the extent to which people will go trying to avoid the result of time, which is 
death. One writer puts it well when he describes this rebellion against time as a rebellion against God. Michael Kelly puts it this way, the precise quality of man's rebellion lies in his supreme aspiration to make nature and history serve and glorify man. To accomplish that goal, he must have the absolute lordship of time and its content. End quote. We know this when we study human history that since the dawn of time itself, specifically since the advent of sin into this world, the various false religions uh, have popped up in large part due to the effort to try to resist the passage of time. And so various pagan rituals were developed to erase the past and manipulate the future. And even today, when we think of how man tries to do this, you still can walk down city streets and find shops where there are fortune tellers, and people really do believe that. They think that they can get insight into the future so as to avoid danger. You have people spending all kinds of money on various cosmetics to erase the passage of time on their own faces. And of course, you have people trying all kinds of diets and supplements, all trying to find that fountain of youth so as to resist the sinking of the sands of time. Well, Solomon provides for us an inspired account of how we, as those who fear God, must look at the concept of time. And that's found in a very well-known passage, Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Turn in your Bibles there. And as I said, we're going to make our effort to get through this entire chapter this evening. Now, as we do in this chapter, we're going to see how Solomon, as he himself considers time in light of the reality that life is a vapor, as he considers time and the right response to time, he is going to give us in this chapter four lessons to learn about God, his relationship to time, and how God uses time in our own lives. And the first lesson that we will see in the first eight verses of Ecclesiastes 3 is this. God's control over time is comprehensive. God's control over time is comprehensive. And we see it in what is probably the most well-known passage of the book of Ecclesiastes and, in fact, one of the most well-known passages of the Old Testament. It is a text that is read at many funerals, even secular funerals. However, often when it is read, very little attention is actually given to Solomon's argument behind these terms and the surrounding context. Let's look at how Solomon begins his treatise on time and God's control of it. He says in verse 1, These words, there is an appointed time for everything, and there is a time for every event under heaven. That is Solomon's thesis statement. He's going to get into a poem in verses 2 to 8, but he begins with this absolute comprehensive assertion. In fact, Solomon words it the way he does in the original. It doesn't come through so much in our English translation, but in the, in the original, it comes through in what's called a chiasm. This statement is a, a special kind of literary structure to place emphasis on a particular set of words. Literally, very simply, you would translate it directly from the Hebrew in this way, for the all or for everything an appointed time, a time for every event. It's what we call a chiasm, and you can see the parallelism there, and what is in the middle of this parallelism, the two statements about time, is what receives the emphasis. Solomon is emphasizing time. Now, the second word that we see there for time is actually a very common word for time, and it just simply refers to the passing of time. But the first word for time that is used there is the word that is translated as appointed time. 
It's a word that is used more rarely in scripture, and it always emphasizes that a season, a time, has been determined special for some reason. And in this case, Solomon does not indicate who appoints this time for everything, for the all, but we know from the context that it is clearly God who does this. Now, Solomon is not going to mention God until verse 10, and then he's going to mention him frequently through the rest of the chapter, but he assumes that God is the one who has appointed time for everything. In fact, we can even see that in that phrase there, under heaven. There is an appointed time for everything, and there is a time for every event under heaven. Now that phrase under heaven is a little different than the phrase under the sun. We've seen the phrase under the sun numerous times already in Ecclesiastes, and that is a term that designates our domain as creatures. We live, we have our our dealings under the sun. We are dependent upon the sun as that most influential part of creation in our practical living. But that which is under heaven expresses the domain of God. And so we can see here at the very beginning, Solomon has no need to mention God's name, but he is very much assumed. He is the one who has determined time for everything. In other words, in this statement, Solomon is emphasizing that in our lives, there is nothing that is haphazard. There is nothing, as we're going to see in his poem in particular, that is the result of blind fate. There is nothing that is chaotic. All of it has been foreordained. That comes through in vivid detail in the poem that follows. In verses 2 to 8, Solomon writes this. There is a time to give birth and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to uproot what is planted. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to tear down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to throw stones and a time to gather stones. A time to embrace and a time to shun embracing. A time to search and a time to give up as lost. A time to keep and a time to throw away. A time to tear apart and a time to sew together. A time to be silent and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. Now as we go through that, we see there's this rhythmic pattern that creates this sense even through the wording of the idea of changing seasons one to the next. And what we find here are 14 pairs uh, of expressions and each of these pairs expresses something opposite, birth and death, planting, uprooting, killing, healing. And these 14 pairs are expressed in terms of opposites and they are expressed that way because Solomon is emphasizing that the foreordination of life's circumstances don't just happen in the extremes, but they happen in every aspect in between. Time here is mentioned 28 times. And and through it all, and we won't go through what all of these mean, you can do that on your own, but through this entire list, what Solomon is doing is he is emphasizing all-inclusive foreordination, all-inclusive control, every conceivable event, all of it has been appointed, all of it has been planned. God's control over time is comprehensive. Solomon wants us to understand that. Now, what's interesting to note is when this 
realization occurs in Solomon's own life. We've said it before several times that this book of Ecclesiastes was probably written right at the end of Solomon's life, including this particular section on time. Solomon has spent years in disobedience to the Lord. He has mishandled all the gifts and blessings God has given him. Now he's been brought by the gracious providence of the Lord back to Yahweh. And now Solomon is reflecting. He's looking back over all the seasons of life. By this time, if we would read 1 Corinthians 11 and place Ecclesiastes in that context, by this time, Solomon already received the prophecy of God's discipline, that the the discipline of the Lord would be upon Solomon and upon his kingdom. At the, this latter portion in his life, now, for the first time, adversaries arise, and the peace that Solomon enjoyed as he squandered the blessings, now that peace is gone. Now Solomon has opponents, and, and, and Solomon was told that even though the, the greatest part of the discipline would not happen in his life, it was coming, and that it would be realized in the life and leadership of his son, Rehoboam, who would be the one who would squander all these, this, these blessings. Now, despite Solomon's failures, God remained completely in control, and Solomon recognizes that in his life, everything has happened to him by the sovereign design of God, including that which lay ahead. God's control over time is meticulous. It is comprehensive. It is absolute. And this is important for us as men to recognize as well. God's control over our lives is comprehensive. It is meticulous. One writer William Barrick in his commentary on Ecclesiastes says this. He says, what is the point of this description of time-oriented events, the description of verses 2 to 8? It is that nothing happens haphazardly. No chance, no fate governs the things that happen in the lives of God's people. He controls all the events. We must think of that. We must Ruminate on that because as much as we might affirm this in principle, we do so easily when all the good things happen, when all the positive aspects of this poem are realized in our lives, things like peace and love of being sewn together, a time of keeping, a time of embracing, a time of dancing, a time of laughing, a time of healing, a time of planting. All these things are easy for us to acknowledge as coming from the hand of God. But it's in the negative things where our views are challenged and we grumble, we become cynical with little things as small as stubbing our toe, and immediately the word comes out, the inappropriate word, the cursing at the the bedpost, or a flat tire, and the cursing at the person who left the nail on the street. It's in those moments where we practically deny or even worse, rebel against the sovereignty of God, the comprehensive control that God exercises over those very circumstances. And what Solomon is reminding us here is that that too comes from the Lord. The time of death comes from the Lord. The time of uprooting comes from the Lord. The time of killing comes from the Lord. The time of tearing down comes from the Lord. The time of weeping comes from the Lord. The time of mourning comes from the Lord. The time of gathering stones comes from the Lord. Of shunning embracing. Of giving up as lost. Of throwing away. Of tearing apart. Of being silent. A time of hate. A time of war. All of these things in their particular expressions in our lives come from a God who is meticulously 
and absolutely sovereign. And we have to have the right response. And Solomon is going to get there. The second lesson that we learn over this issue of time and God's control of it is found in verses 9 to 13. And it's this, God's control over time is appropriate. God's control over time is appropriate. How those grains of sand go through the the hourglass, it is entirely appropriate. Solomon says this in verses 9 to 10, this, this section is verses 9 to 13, but notice first of all nine, verses 9 and 10, he says, what profit is there to the worker from that in which he toils? I have seen the task which God has given the sons of men with which to occupy themselves. Now here is where Solomon immediately responds to the reality of God's control over time with a provocative question. It's that provocative question that he has asked several times. It goes all the way back to chapter 1, verse 3, where Solomon asked at the very beginning of the book, what advantage does man have in all of his work which he does under the sun? Life is brief. Man has responsibilities. Where is meaning and significance in all of that? And after here, in in chapter 3, after affirming God's meticulous control over all of our circumstances, he asks the provocative question once again, what profit is there? If God is really in control of all of our circumstances, then then how do we take responsibility for our own lives? What can we do if we can't change what God has determined? Walter Kaiser summarizes it this way. He says, All life unfolds under the appointment of divine providence. Birth, death, growth, harvest, joys, sorrows, acquiring, losing, speaking up, being silent, war and peace. Since everything has its time from God, all the labor of a person by itself cannot change the times, circumstances, or control of events. And this reality is what leads some to indifference, to having a kind of fatalistic view of life. What will be, will be. I just don't care anymore. Or worse, a kind of cynicism of thinking that God is mean and that he's just out to get me. Or even worse, a kind of, of, kind of contempt where we bring our rebellion and direct accusations against the Lord. What are you doing? I can't even do anything about it. And you're bringing this into my life. It's a very real response. Solomon raises it, but he's going to answer this kind of question with the proper response. And it's found in, in verse 11. He moves on in this, this middle section. And he, and he says here in verse 11, he, that is God, has made everything appropriate in its time. He has also set eternity in their hearts, yet so that man will not find out the work which God has done from the beginning even to the end. So he asked in verse 9, what profit is there in light of the fact that God controls time and all its circumstances? What profit is there for us? What can we possibly do? Now Solomon is going to answer that. And rather than expressing cynicism or contempt, Solomon wants us to understand this about God's control of time. Everything is entirely appropriate. Everything is entirely appropriate. The Hebrew word that is used there is actually the word beautiful, and some translations will even have that. God has made everything beautiful in its time. Now, the emphasis there is not just that it has some kind of beauty look to it, but rather the emphasis is that what God has planned, the circumstances that are described in verses 2 to 8, the circumstances that we can expect in life are always fully appropriate. They are appropriate to the situation. They are beautiful in that God has wisely orchestrated the circumstances that we step into because they are the very, very best. 
There's no way that it should be better. And that's hard for us to believe. We can often look at our circumstances, perhaps even within the last several hours, and say, well, if I had something to say about this, I would have done it better. I would have done it differently. I would have organized the events so that this would have happened. And all of us are guilty of that kind of thinking. Yet what Solomon reminds us here is this. No, you could not plan it better. God, the all-wise one, has made it perfectly fitting, appropriate to your circumstance, the situation that you're in. You needed that. That is an expression of God's wisdom. In many ways, this verse expresses what we read in the New Testament in Romans 8.28, where Paul writes this, we know that God causes some things. No, all things. God causes all things, all things, all the little details that contribute to the bigger details, which contribute to the even bigger details. God causes all of these minutia to work together for our good. You could say here, God has made everything appropriate in its time. And here we read in Romans 8.28, as Solomon communicates as well to those who fear God in the Old Testament context, here it's to us in the church that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. You must reflect upon that. Every circumstance that you're in, the good times and the worst are entirely fitting, perfect for your situation. Now, that automatically raises a question, well, how can I know this, especially with such a limited perspective? We are limited by the moments around our consciousness. And that's why Solomon goes on to say this in in the following sentence. He says, he has also set eternity in their heart. God has placed within us this yearning that we would be able to have answers to the, to the why questions and, and to the how questions. That, okay, we can accept the fact that God is causing all things to work together for good, that everything has been done appropriate in its time, but I want to know how. I want to know why this and not that. And Solomon acknowledges that this is an entirely natural response. We're not like the creatures who have no perception of time. We do, and being created in the image of God, we know that there is a transcendence above us. That that there is a perspective that exists, that sees the beginning from the end, that sees everything perfectly, that looks at the entire big picture and and, and can account for how everything fits together perfectly in terms of circumstance. We want to know that. We'll, We'll submit to the reality of God's sovereign, meticulous control, but we want to know the reasons behind it. Solomon acknowledges that. God has set eternity in our own hearts. But he goes on to say this, that man will not be able to find out the work which God has done from the beginning even to the end. As much as the yearning exists for that transcendent perspective to look at the entire scope of eternity and how our life fits into that, Solomon says God has not permitted it. God has not permitted it. Now, Solomon doesn't go into a detailed theological explanation. We know from elsewhere that we simply cannot understand the ways of God, even if it was possible to truly transcend our circumstances. Our minds can't fathom eternity. Our minds could not look at all of our life in one snapshot. It's impossible. We don't have the capacity. So in that sense, it's a mercy that we're not required to know that. We couldn't, even if we tried. 
But also Solomon is just recognizing something here that's very important again for us to recognize. God doesn't need to tell us. Even if we can understand, God does not need to tell us. That's an important realization we need to make. It's the key, as Solomon's going to go on to say, to finding true joy and happiness in this life is giving up on insisting on that right. To the extent where we say, I need to understand this, is the extent to which we will subject our lives to misery. Not only can we not understand it, but God is under no obligation to tell us in the moment why he is doing the things he he is doing in our lives and giving us all of those circumstances which we don't like. He is not under obligation. And it's not because he's mean. It's not because he's unrighteous. He is simply God. And that mystery belongs to him. And we must appropriately recognize that our responsibility is to respond then with humility and faith. Humility in recognizing I don't have a right to know. I'm a creature. And faith recognizing that God has things under control and he's doing everything perfectly. This then leads to one of these carpe diem statements right at the end of this second section in verses 12 to 13. In light of this reality that God controls time appropriately, his sovereignty is exercised in complete perfection, Solomon then gives us a duty here that we are to recognize. Verses 12 and 13, he says, I know that there is nothing better for them than to rejoice and to do good in one's lifetime. Moreover, that every man who eats and drinks sees good in all his labor. It is the gift of God. In light of the fact that we don't have a demand to make to know these things, and in light of the fact that God is so sovereign in these things and wise in these things, we must submit to that reality and we show that submission in our everyday lives in this way. Learning the lessons here from Solomon, we recognize, first of all, we must appreciate God's rule. Notice, he says there's nothing better for them than to rejoice. To rejoice in light of the fact that I can't understand eternity? Yes. To rejoice in light of the fact that God's not going to tell you all the answers? Yes. There's nothing better than in the midst of that than to rejoice. Secondly, that submission manifests itself in obedience to God's commands. He says, and to do good in one's lifetime. Now, you have to understand, for Solomon, he's not just talking about doing good in the world's sense of doing good. No, this is doing good in the sense of obedience to God's commands, what God has revealed. He's going to talk about this later on in, in chapter 12 as he brings the book to, to a conclusion that we are to fear God and keep his commandments. That's what he's saying here. That we are to do good, that we are to focus our, ourselves on the revealed word of God. The things that he has not left secret, but has given to us to tell us how we ought to structure and live our lives. That is what is to occupy our time. And then thirdly, he says we are to be grateful for his gifts. He says we are to see, we are to see good in our labor. That in the things that we do, the the actual mundane things of this life, we are to see that this is a gift of God, of being able to work and, and, and then enjoy the fruits of that labor in terms of eating and drinking and sustenance, that that's a good thing. We are to find our satisfaction there. And so often we, we do the exact opposite. What do we do? We, we want to do God's job for him. We, we focus ourselves in trying to think what God should be doing for us. Rather than submitting to God's rule, recognizing his sovereignty, and in that submission saying, okay, I understand my lane. And I'm going to live in my lane. And I'm going to do so fearfully. And I'm going to do so in submission. And that is the key to enjoyment of this life. It is the gift of God to be able to enjoy these things, Solomon says. 
And this is the exact opposite of the typical responses of frustration and fatalism that so often mark men's lives. Thirdly, a third lesson to learn here is that God's control over time is everlasting. There's a brief comment, a brief lesson that Solomon gives us in verses 14 to 15 in that God's God's control over time is everlasting. He says in verse 14, I know that everything God does will remain forever. There is nothing to add to it and there is nothing to take away from it for God has so worked that men should fear him. This this echoes some of the great statements that we find in the Old Testament even prior to Solomon, such as that great psalm from Moses Psalm 90, a psalm on God's eternality and man's transitoriness. I won't read it, but you can go back and read it later. It's the same idea that's there. Solomon is emphasizing that God's eternality and that his sovereign control extends to everything should lead us to a particular response. It should lead us to fear Literally, it should lead us to be, quote, in awe before him. God doesn't need to tell us all these details. And what God does, no one can change. It can't be thwarted. His plan is going to endure. He reigns forever. No one is challenging his reign as they did Solomon's reign. God has no real adversaries. He is in complete control. And that ought to cause us to be in awe, to respond in fearful reverence where we realize how different God is from us. And you know, there's nothing that helps us in our worship of God so much as to realize how infinitely different he is. When we struggle with worship, it's because we want to make God like us. And there is nothing wonderful about that. But when we see that he is utterly different, infinitely different, and that there is this infinite chasm between God as creator and we as creatures, and then we get to know this God and that we recognize his handiwork in our lives, both the hard times and the good times, that brings us to true worship. We respond in fear. What is fear? could define it this way. It is affectionate reverence by which the child of God bends himself humbly and carefully to his father's law. Solomon goes on to say this in verse 15. He says, that which has been already and that which will be has already been for God seeks what has passed by. We won't spend a lot of time on this, but Solomon is asserting here that God, the everlasting one, does not experience or relate to time as we do. God never loses track of time. He never wastes opportunities. He never forgets what has passed. He never encounters anything new. For us, in particular, that which we do know in the present all of a sudden becomes water under the bridge in the past. It becomes a distant memory. We can call it a bygone. It becomes the past. And it's hard to remember. And that's one of the things that we fight against, especially as we grow older. We start to forget. But Solomon says here, that's not God's experience. He says at the end there, he says, for God seeks what has passed by. How, how are we to understand that? It means that God actively knows the past. He actively knows it. It never passes out of his understanding. And that's going to set us up for what he's going to say now in verse, verses 16 to 22, as we get to this next point, the fourth lesson that God's control over time is righteous. God's control over time is righteous. So what he says about the past is important because he's going to introduce us here to the reality of future judgment. It's going to be explained for us in these verses. We'll go through them quickly. What Solomon essentially does is he presents us with two challenges. Okay, if God is so meticulously involved and controlling of time and circumstances, what about this and this? He's going to deal with two challenges, two 
God's sovereignty. And the first one is this. The first challenge is found in verse 16 and answered in verse 17. But the first challenge is this. What about the presence of injustice? You say that God is controlling all events? Really? So then what do we, what do we make of injustice? He says in verse 16, he says, furthermore, I have seen under the sun that in the place of justice, that is a courtroom, there is wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, the courtroom, there is wickedness. And so Solomon considers what is a universal experience. We all have encountered injustice in this world. And so how do we reconcile that with God's meticulous control of time? Solomon deals with that now in verse 17. He gives the answer to this first challenge and he says this, I said to myself, God will judge both the righteous man and the wicked man. For a time, for every matter, and for every deed is there. Now there's some debate about what the there refers to. It's best to treat this as a reference to future judgment. That no, God hasn't lost control. That there is a future eschatological judgment where man's activities, notice what he says, every matter and every deed will be judged. God will judge. One writer puts it this way, one of the ways we learn to live by preparing to die is by realizing that death means judgment and that this is a good thing. It gives my present actions meaning and weight, and it gives my experienced losses and injustices a voice in God's presence. What is past may be past, but what is past is not forgotten to God. And because he is in charge and lives forever, one day all will be well. Every single thing that happens will have its day in court. That is, of course, a comfort and a warning. Future judgment is coming. God has not lost control. This world is not chaotic. It's not haphazard. God is working, and he will bring everything to light. It is not being forgotten. He is in charge, and he will bring justice in its purest form. A second challenge is then found in verses 18 to 21. And this is a little bit more challenging in the way that it's worded. The second challenge has to do with the fate of death. Notice what Solomon states in verses 18 to 20, as he again deals with one of the challenges to the idea of God's meticulous control over all of circumstances. He said, I said to myself concerning the sons of men, God has surely tested them in order, to, in order for them to see that they are but beasts. For the fate of the sons of men and the fate of beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. Indeed, they all have the same breath and there is no advantage for man over beast for all is vanity, all is a vapor. All go to the same place. All came from the dust and all return to the dust. Solomon here considers God's meticulous control over time in relation to the circumstance of death, particularly here in the reality of physical death. And he says, how can there be the same ending if God is righteous? How can there be the same ending for man created in God's image and for the animal? He asks, where is God's fairness in this? Isn't man made higher than animals? So isn't God controlling how man dies? Why is he making man die in the same way that animals die? In that their bodies go into the grave, they decompose and turn into dust. Well, Solomon in expressing this is expressing the reality of the curse. Indeed, this is what is a conundrum for us, uh, understanding the role of the curse in our lives and how it creates so many enigmas. Genesis 3.19 states it clearly where God said to Adam, from dust you were taken and to dust you shall return. But verse 21 provides the answer to this enigma And it's a little bit of a difficult verse to 
to interpret. In our Bibles, it's expressed as an interrogative, as a question. Verse 21, and it's intended because of the parallelism here. It's intended as it was in the first challenge. Verse 17 and verse 21 are parallel in that they give the answer to the enigma. And here's the answer. Who knows that the breath of man or the spirit of man ascends upward and the breath of the beast descends downward to the earth. Now, as I said, this verse is a little difficult to interpret, but it's best to understand it not as Solomon just open-endedly wondering what happens in the afterlife if there is one. Solomon is, is not leaving that open to, to just an honest inquiry as if no answer exists. In the immediately preceding section of verse 17, he has already said that there will be final judgment. There will be final judgment. He's going to emphasize it again in verses, in, in chapter 14, or chapter 12, verse 14, when he says, for God will bring every act to judgment Everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. Solomon has already acknowledged a future eschatological judgment. But he has also acknowledged that the soul does return to God. Or I should say he will acknowledge this. Also in chapter 12. And we're going to get there in 2024. But we will get to the end of this book. And and here's verses 6 and 7 of chapter 4. Listen to what Solomon says. There's some, there's some idioms here that we don't really need to delve into. We're get, we'll get there. We'll understand them in, in the proper time. But the general drift of this statement is clear. Solomon says, Remember God before the silver cord is broken and the golden bowl is crushed. The pitcher by the well is shattered and the wheel at the cistern is crushed. He's speaking about the end of vessels. And then he says this in verse 7, Then the dust will return to the earth as it was, and the spirit will return to God who gave it. Chapter 12, verse 7. No, Solomon understands the, the future, the, the afterlife, And that for him is the solution to this dilemma of of beast and and man experiencing the same physical death. Solomon is saying, no, the righteousness of God is going to be manifest in the the reality that though their bodies do return to dust as part of the curse, the soul of man will go to judgment before God. As a result, he then gives us a final carpe diem statement here in this text. Verse 22, we'll end with this. He says, I have seen that there is nothing better than that man should be happy in his activities. For that is his lot. That is his duty. For who will bring him to see what will occur after him? Having reaffirmed God's impeccable judgment, his impeccable righteousness in his sovereign control over time, Solomon issues another carpe diem. He says, seize the time. Seize the day. God is going to judge every deed in the end. Man is responsible to steward his life, however brief it may be. So Solomon says to his readers, God controls time, but you're responsible. God is sovereign, but he's going to judge every deed. And here is what we take from it all, that in light of life's brevity, we have a responsibility to to, to receive all that God gives us and steward it in the right way. And this requires this enthusiastic embrace of, of our lane that God has given us. Stay within the lane. Enjoy the lane. Do the lane that God has given to us as men walking on this earth. That is what we take away from the fact that we, as much as we want to understand eternity, we can't see it all. We have a little glimpse. God is in control. Nothing is wasted in our lives. So we seize every moment and we live it in fear and in enjoyment, and in obedience. Now, how do we apply this in just a few short exhortations? 
First, cease grumbling. Get rid of the self-pity, men. That can be our problem. We love to pity ourselves all the time. Every day. Every bad circumstance. We call it misfortune. Not from the hand of God. Cease grumbling. Number two, respond with awe. God is the one who meticulously controls all of these details. Both the the good things and the hard things for us. He's working every detail. That should lead us to recognize how different he is from us and should cause us to respond in fear, in awe. Number three, learn to delight in God's sovereignty. This is not a doctrine that should cause us to, to withdraw. It should cause us to rejoice. These details are in his hands and he makes everything fitting for its time. Number four, remember future judgment. It's coming. In his righteousness, God orchestrates everything and he will call into account every deed. That is both a comfort and a warning. Fifth, steward your time. Respond rightly. Recognize what God has given you. Enjoy the lane that you've been sovereignly provided and live it to the max. Enjoy everything that God has given you to do. Enjoy that sovereignty. Enjoy that recognition that he's controlling it, that the good and the difficult are from his hand. And and so is that that work, that labor that you have to do. All the things in this life that have come from him, you embrace those things. Realize you will give an account. And Solomon's charge is, listen, standing before God, that time is coming. Make sure you steward your life well. It's brief. Let's pray. Father, we are challenged here by this truth of your sovereign control over every detail of our lives. That is, in many cases, a hard truth for us to swallow. And yet we find that in accepting that truth, we find our contentment. We find our delight in life. We find our joy. Give us that heart that submits to this, that embraces this reality. Give us the ability to stop trying to do your job and instead embrace our own responsibilities before you and to do so with joy. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.